Um, what I want to do, section one, is just sort of back up a little bit because I think that's really important when you're right in the thick of things and give us a big picture of what is it that we're actually trying to do, not adding on extra burdens to ourselves as parents, but how can we actually enter into what we're already doing in ways that line up with what uh, our Lord would want us to do. That's section one. Section two is <laughs> what do we do when we realize we've not been doing that? How do we actually not feel burdened and, and weighed down by that? And then section three, which I'll spend the majority of the time on, is a little bit more nuts and bolts. What do we actually, how do we implement some of these things? That's the overview of today. Years ago, when I was working as a counselor, I was talking to a colleague of mine. She was celebrating her 20th wedding anniversary, and she said, it's weird to think about, but if John and I had had kids when we first got married, they'd be in college by now. And I looked at her and I said, Nina, if Sally, my wife Sally, if Sally and I had had kids when we first got married, they'd be in counseling by now. <laughs> and I, I, I said that tongue in cheek, but I think actually it's pretty accurate. Sally and I are not gifted parents. We did not long all of our lives to be parents. We did not come from abusive families. We came from relatively good ones. But our families did not train us to be parents, did not help us to think down the road of what we needed to do in order to uh, think about parenting. And so we actually waited five years before we had kids, nervousness and all the rest of that. And God, in his kindness, took pity on this extremely scared couple and gave us one of the most difficult children as our first child. She didn't sleep, she didn't nap, she didn't eat, she didn't play. And so in my mind, I had this you know, shelf of parenting books, and I took about half of them and just threw them in the trash because obviously they're not applicable to this child. Second child was a dream. I didn't know they had these because that was not our first experience. He actually ate. He took naps. He was fun to be around with. He played. And so I imaginary and dug out the parenting books and started using them until he turned four at which point they went back in the trash because they didn't apply any longer. I didn't need to dig them out for the third child because he just didn't like me for about the first year. And so parenting him was relatively easy because Sally had to do all of that. Where are our kids now? 27, they'll almost be 25 and 22, now in the launch phase of their lives. It is nothing short of amazing to me with all of the things that we did wrong that we still have relationships with them that they still reach out to us, they talk to us. It, it's a very strange day when Sally and I are not getting text messages from at least one or, or more of them. And a key component that I would think that went into why do we still have this is that because we have been intentionally inviting them into conversations all their lives, just filling their worlds with communication. There's this amazing thing, you've all experienced this, amazing thing that happens as you take care of kids. They start talking. They want to talk. First off, it's just babbling, but then they begin to engage you, and they're expressing themselves. They're expressing their desires, their wants, their likes, their dislikes, and you start having this interaction that goes both ways. You start to be able to talk with them, and that interaction is one of the primary ways that we build relationships that are enduring, uh, not only with each other, but especially with our children. It's primary but I would suggest that it's underrated. It's unnoticed. It, it's often undervalued. It goes under the radar. And yet, if you back up and you think about the larger animal kingdom, you realize it really shouldn't because this is really, really rare in the animal kingdom. We had a, uh, a cat 
don't, we're cat people, don't hold that against me. We had a cat once who chirped. It was kind of this trill. It lasted less than a second. It was very cute, very endearing. Had absolutely no idea most of the time what it meant. He would just wander around the house chirping. Our children don't chirp. They're different. And so early on, our daughter's between one and two years old. I come out of the office where I was working. She's sitting in her high chair. She looks incredibly cute. And so I bent down and I kissed the top of her head and I gave her a benediction. I said, kissable. Never had used that uh, word before with anyone. And Cass smiles at me and immediately responds with her own never before heard request. She says to me, more kissable. And I laughed and kissed her again. Now, if you think about it, that's remarkable. She attached meaning to a word that was brand new to her, brand new to our household. She attached meaning correctly, understood what I was saying as I used that word, and then without hesitating, she gave that word back to me with her own additions in order to express her own desires. And in that moment, she fully expects me to understand what she intends for me to do next. Even though nobody in my 30 plus years at that time had ever put together that set of consonants and vowels before, I did what she asked and got even bigger smiles. Those moments happen all the time and they happen so quickly, they feel so ordinary. And yet when you slow it down, it's nothing short of glorious. That two completely distinct individuals are able to pass thoughts Beliefs, attitudes, feelings, requests to each other in just a matter of seconds and be completely understood by each other. There is something in your home every day that you should just sort of pause and praise the Lord when it happens. There should be worship in your house because that's a dim shadow of something divine. Dim shadow that takes place in a three-second interaction with a toddler Something that does not happen anywhere else in all of creation. It's a thing to be marveled at, not just taken as sort of mundane. It's amazing that I am able to make sense of the things I experience in life. It's amazing that I'm able to think about them, to reflect on them personally. It's amazing that I'm able to then use those thoughts to inform what I do next. What is that? That's the image of God in an individual. I reflect the God who made me as I understand his larger world. But now take that individual, put that individual with another individual, and then start to have an interaction with them. And you realize that that's a testimony to the image of God in community. That we can pass our understanding back and forth in a meaningful way is a dim reflection of the interaction that the three distinct persons of our one God have, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when it happens, it's breathtaking in its complexity. Okay, think about what's happening in this very moment. I'm taking thoughts that were formed within a unique mind, one that organizes the world in a particular manner. People might say it's a peculiar manner. But then I'm attaching words to those thought constructs, and I'm attaching words to them that I have my own separate definition for that you don't fully share because my definitions are contextualized by almost 60 years of life experiences. And then I'm offering those thoughts back to you who are processing those words through your set of life experiences organized by your own individual mental processes. And you think it's, it's amazing that we ever understand anything 
that anyone ever says to us at all. It's amazing and it's glorious. It's a reflection of God that only exists when we're with each other. And it's a reflection of God that happens every day in your home. Let's think about God a little bit more in this way. God loves talking within himself. Each member of the Trinity is in this constant, regular communication with the other two. If you read through the Old Testament, you catch little snatches of this conversation, even before the full-blown revelation that there are three persons in our one God. And so you can go back into Genesis, where God says, let us make humanity in our image. And you think, who's the us? There's conversation going on there. It's not talking to the angels. You're not made in the image of the angels. There's a conversation taking place within our God. Those scraps of conversation that you sort of start getting hints of, they tell you about this ongoing deep relationship, this one with rich contours that starts to really come to focus in the Gospels. And so you read where Jesus actively relates to his Father, spends long amounts of time with him, both talking, listening. The Holy Spirit also talks as he leads Jesus into the wilderness. He listens to Jesus so that he can later tell Jesus' friends what he's heard. And you start to get glimpses that there's an extended conversation taking place within our Godhead. The author of Hebrews strings together several instances of it. And not only is God conversing, but in God's opinion, the conversation is just too good to miss. So what does he do? He creates others to talk to, others to share a conversation with. And one of the very first things he does after creating human beings is he starts to communicate to them back in the Garden of Eden before it's ruined. Now you think again about what's going on there. Humanity was what before sin? They were flawless, faultless, but also ignorant. Adam and Eve did not know basic things about themselves. They didn't know that they were made in God's image. They didn't know that they were to find meaning and purpose by relating to him. They didn't know that they were to fill the whole earth to care for it like he does, like he would. They learned those things only when something happened. Something that was at the same time miraculous and mundane. What's the mundane? Someone spoke to them and told them those things. What's the miraculous? It was God who was doing the talking. And so in the garden, you have this picture where God is giving them information that they did not have that they could not have obtained in any other kind of way. So what do you have? You have their their ignorance there that is not tainted with sin. It's not the result of evil. It's immaturity. It's an innocent immaturity that was appropriate to their life experience. And that immaturity is only removed when what? When this older, wiser, more experienced person enters into their world with words. It's all he's doing. Words that then help them mature. Perfectly sinless, still ignorant. They needed to be taught. Those kinds of conversations, that's signaling what? Those, Those are necessary conversations. They're necessary before the blindness and willfulness of sin. And you realize, wow, if they're necessary, then they are that much more essential after the fall into sin. And that's why one of the ways that we image him is by speaking to our children like God speaks to us. So you start hearing that as you read through scripture. After giving the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, which is what, again, God talking to his people, 
He's imparting wisdom, knowledge that they could not have if he doesn't extend himself to them. After doing that, he tells them, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19, you shall teach them, you shall teach my commands, to your children. Talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Let's summarize. What did he just say to them? He said, teach and talk everywhere. Verbally communicate, not simply what God says, but talk about how his words intersect with daily life. Intersect where? As you're at home. When you're out on the road, as you're sitting down, walking, as you're lying down, getting up, talk so much that you do what? You fill your children's world with God's words so that your children start to get the sense of, oh, that's who God is. Whether your children accept or reject that God, that's not up to you. Your job is to make them very aware that this is the God who is and this is his world. This is how he lives in his world and invites you to live in his world as well. And so the design that you see in humanity, by God's intention, each one of us enters this life knowing absolutely nothing. <laughs> but then we're slowly brought to understand our world, understand our place in it through this very ordinary medium of people talking to us. That sense of responsibility to pass on what we've received just keeps continuing throughout the Old Testament. The psalmist Chapter, uh, chapter 145, verse 4, just assumes that that's how this happens. He says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This is how this propagates. One generation takes responsibility for this next generation of faith and communicates to them, this is how God acts in the world. It's just the way it's supposed to be. Those who have been taught have a responsibility to pass that along to the next generation of faith. All right, well, you might expect that that's going to end in the New Testament, especially when Jesus says in John 14, 26, that I have much to tell you, but you can't bear it right now. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And so you might think, okay, well, now it's God's job to directly speak to each one of us, no longer through each other. But then you keep reading through the New Testament, and you keep running into these passages that just assume the church is now going to communicate what God has said in exactly the same way that the Old Testament people of God did. So you run into a passage like Ephesians 4.29 that tells us, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Or as the ESV puts it, that it may give grace to those who hear. How do we interact inside the larger church in the family of God, we have these grace-based conversations with each other. We're to be embedded in them. Or you get a passage like Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In that passage, a key antidote to sin, to the hardness of our own hearts, the key antidote is what? It's that we talk to each other. It's that we continue to have these conversations among ourselves. 
And so this is just the rhythm of the church. We are living in the midst of grace-oriented conversations. We think carefully about what others need to hear. And we hear from others who long to build us up and encourage us as we wrestle through sin and evil in this world. And so it's with the help of godly older believers over time that we then mature into responsible members of the church who in turn then can nurture others. You think that's really odd. God entrusts our development to people who were once more ignorant than they are now. And he thinks that's a great idea. That's how he thinks the church moves forward in this world. That process of how we grow into what God has planned for us is so commonplace that you find it as a narrative in popular literature. You get stories of a novice. You can think here about the children of Narnia, the hobbits of Middle Earth, novices who are plunged into a world that is just so unfamiliar. They're floundering. They don't know what this world is like. They don't know how to respond. There's dangers out there. Future happiness hangs in the balance with each one of the decisions that these novices are making. And then slowly, each one starts to get a handle on what's going on. Start to figure out how to navigate, how to master the new experiences. Why? Because other people talk to them. And explain to them, this is the world that has always been. This is the world that you just got dropped into. And these older people start to tell stories give the world depth and feel. They instruct the novices. They correct the novices. They give them new lenses, new perspectives through which to view all of life. And what happens? These little ones who just got plunged into this larger world, they get impassioned. They try to live out what they've been taught. They grow up into more than they ever hoped they could be all through the ordinariness of talk. These coming-of-age stories are not just in Christian literature. You can think about Bella the Vampire if you'd like, Harry Potter. They touch us. Why? This is how God has structured the world. And so as we hear these stories, we are seeing ourselves in them. At birth, we're all novices. We encounter this alien world that we learn piecemeal from people who have been here before us and who know more about it. And we develop our understandings of the world and our place in it one conversation at a time. That's true of humanity in general. It is more true of God's family in particular. And because your family is a building block of the church, it's essential for your family as well. So what are you trying to do with your children? You're trying to give content. Content that will orient your child, who's made in God's image, to God's world. You're trying to give them content that helps them understand who they are in his world, trying to help them understand how they should live. You have to give content. But as you give content, you also have to give your child a reason for why they would actually take that content from you, believe that content, accept it, and embrace it. And those reasons are relational in nature. The reasons are based on what your children know of you. They are based on what they experience of you. So if those experiences are positive, your child is that much more likely to embrace the content you're giving. If those experiences are negative, your child is that much more likely to reject the content you're trying to give. And 
we don't think about it, but those very words that give the content are the very words that are giving your child a reason to either trust or distrust what it is that you're saying. Very theoretical. Let me give an illustration. After church one week, we're getting ready to visit grandparents, mama and papa, for Easter dinner. Now, when our family tries to coordinate our schedules, I, I, I want to give everybody enough advance notice so that everybody can plan their lives accordingly. I have an undergraduate in engineering. I like that kind of world. So we're getting ready to leave. I come out into the living room and I say to the kids, okay, make sure you've got all your stuff together because we're going to go in about 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, I now have all my stuff together. As I'm about to walk out the door, I call out to, to the kids, okay, everybody, get in the van. And immediately, every single person in the room jumps up from what they're doing and races in every direction possible except to the van. So this one runs to the bathroom, another one goes to get books and toys for the trip, someone else needed shoes, and I'm left there standing in the living room all by myself with nobody getting in the van. You don't have those experiences, I'm sure. That's a really, that's a really important moment. Because what I do next regardless of what I say or what I don't say, regardless of the content that I give or don't give, I'm going to communicate three things to my family. First thing I'm going to communicate is what I'm like as a person. Jesus tells us, Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure in his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside of you will come out one way or another. Your mouth will speak. When you talk, what is it that you're communicating? It's not just content. You're communicating what's inside of you, what you value. And so whatever I say or don't say in that moment, I'm going to be telling my family, here's what's important to me and here's what's not. Here's where my commitments lie. Here's what I think is essential in life. See, my words always tell you about me. They tell you about the invisible part of me that you can't see. I'm communicating all the time what I'm like inside. Second thing that I'm communicating, because I speak out of what I value, my words will always commu communicate the place that other people have in my world. And so what you hear or don't hear from me tells you how I value people. It tells you what I value them for. It tells you how I treat people, how I expect relationships to work. It tells you the role that I play in other people's lives, the role that I expect others to play in my life. In other words, what I say, what I'm about to say, tells you what a friendship with me is like. It tells you what I'm like personally, but it also tells you what I'm like relationally. Third thing that I'm communicating is I'm telling you about what the future is probably going to be like. I'm telling you that I will most likely treat you in the future pretty much like I just did. That I will probably use the words later if nothing changes, like I'm using words right now. And in that sense, what I say or don't say has an implied invitation embedded in it. The invitation sounds something like this. Based on how you just experienced me with the words that I just used, 
Would you like more of me? Would you like to keep having a friendship with me? <laughs> or have you had enough <laughs> and you'd really rather be done with me? Now, here's the glorious and the hard part. You can't avoid the fact that you're issuing that invitation every time you use your mouth. Whether you say something or you don't say something, you're teaching people what you're like, what you're like in a relationship, and then they are deciding on that basis whether or not a future relationship with you is something that they would really like or not like. Thinking about that future impact is so important as you deal with things in the present. See, I know that if my children experience me as harsh, strict, overbearing, joyless, gloomy, never satisfied, depressed, needy, if that's their experience of me, it's because I've communicated what I value and cherish deep inside is not them. Instead, I've let them know that what I expect from them is some kind of hassle-free living with no interruptions while they give me the love and respect that I feel I'm entitled to based on how much I think I've done for them. Now, if that's their present experience of me, I should probably not be too surprised if later on they decide to have as little to do with me as possible. You realize kids do that, right? They grow up. They are not as emotionally dependent on you. They're not as physically dependent on you. They become not as relationally dependent on you. They can find all of that somewhere else. If they're not experiencing me in the present as someone that they would like to have a relationship with, they will do that elsewhere. You think, that just makes sense. Why would they want more of me when I've given them no good reason to want more? On the other hand, if they experience me as candid, frank, nurturing, caring, gentle, fun, direct, concerned, engaging, trustworthy, truthful, wise, those things flow from a different set of internal values on my part. And I've let them know that I'm interested more in their well-being than I'm interested in my own ease and comfort. That I'm more interested in them in having an opportunity so that they could mature into all that God's made for them, ever intended them to be. Words that build that second kind of experience in the present imply what? Maybe there's more of that goodness if you keep having a friendship with me. I'll have given them a reason to stay connected. Now, please hear this, underline this piece. That future relationship is not guaranteed. You can't make that happen. That has to be something that comes from inside of them. But think for a moment, which is more likely, that they would want to continue a relationship based on that second nurturing, caring experience of me, or the first? Now, theory I think sounds pretty good. But in the moment when you're faced with a situation by your child, there are so many quick, bad decisions that you make with your words. I have a long list of them. For instance, when I'm standing alone in the living room after my family has scattered when I told them to get in the van, there are a couple easy options for me to take. Option one, I can come down hard on people. I could stand there in the middle of the living room and, and yell, I said get in the van and I mean now. I've tried that. Or I could follow people around, badgering and nagging them. What do you think you're doing? 
I know you heard me. What's wrong with you? Why don't you ever listen? Or you can ramp that up a little bit more strongly. Your problem is you never listen because you never care about anyone else other than yourself. list goes on of all of the heavy-handed tactics I've tried in the past. I could have used any of those in that moment. Now, what would happen if I went down that road one more time? Here's the worst part. It would probably work. They would probably drop what they're doing and get in the van, if for no other reason than simply to escape me. But there would also be silence. Might be fear. Certainly they're going to resent being mistreated. There's going to be no relationship. They'll hate the way that I lead the family. And I will have taught them that authority in general is overbearing. That's all bad. There's something, however, that's much worse. And that is that I would communicate a false gospel. Because I engage them as what? I engage them as an image of God. As an ambassador of God. I engage them as God's representative. And so I would teach my family in that moment, this is the Jesus I know. Whenever I mess up, he's harsh. Abusive. Crushing. He can't stand it when I do something wrong because it upsets his agenda. And then because he didn't get what he wanted, he lashes out at me and won't let up until he's beaten me back into place. You can expect him to do the same for you. In other words, I can speak words to my children that sound very honest, they sound direct, they sound truthful. You don't care about anyone except yourself. But I'm not speaking that truth in my child's best interest. I'm not thinking in that moment about what they need. Instead, those words are being used. That truth, quotations, is only something I'm using to accomplish my agenda. And in that sense, I might be authentic, I might be genuine, but I'm only authentically and genuinely out for my own interest, not for Christ's or my child's. It's truthful speech in a sense, but it's truthful speech that has no concern for the other person. It's truth, what? Without love. What do we typically call words that are directed to speak in that kind of way? Words that highlight someone's failings or their weaknesses. Words that would hurt, words that would embarrass. We tend to call that sarcasm, criticism. What is that? That's a version of truth that tears people down. Which is not really truth, though, right? Because that's not truth like God speaks truth. When God speaks truth, he speaks it to make people stronger, not to make them weaker. That's all in that little half second there that I could go down with option one. Option two, just to give us the other end of the spectrum, it's just as bad. I could do nothing as I watch everyone scatter until they slowly trickle out to the van in their own good time. This time, the dialogue is not external. It's words that I'm not saying. It's more internal. But it would be just as poisonous. This dialogue is more me whining to myself. No one ever listens to me. I do all the work around here. I provide for everyone else. I try to get things ready. I try to make things nice. But they don't care. I don't know why I even bother. 
The worst is there's nothing I can really do about it except put up with it till they grow up and move out. Guess I'll go sit in the van by myself and hope they don't make me wait too long this time. Take option two and you realize that results in relationships that are just as badly broken as option one, which is bad, but it also paints an equally distorted picture of God. What does option two communicate about God? It says Jesus pulls away in self-pity whenever you hurt him. He doesn't like it when you ignore him, but he's relatively helpless. He has no real power, no real plan to help you, so he just pulls back and distances himself from you. Figures he has to guard his own heart since he has to put up with you being hopelessly broken. So go ahead, do whatever you like, whenever you like. Just realize when you do, you're on your own. Now in this option, I see the problem clearly. But I'm unwilling to speak honestly to anybody about it. When that happens, I don't really care about what's in my children's best interests either. See, if you're in trouble and I won't make the effort to help you see the problem, I really don't care about you because I care about something else more. It's not simply that I don't want to hurt you or I don't want to make waves. It's that I want those things more than I want to help. I want peace at all costs more than I want to see you built up and strengthened. I want that kind of peace more than I want to see you protected. I want hassle-free living for myself more than I want to see you becoming the person the Lord's given his life to produce. And you realize when that drives me, that's not love. What is it when someone knows what is true but won't say it out of fear? Call those things hypocrisy. Mealy-mouthed sentimentality. This is love that keeps you from being strong. Therefore, it's not love. It's not real love. It's a fake. So when you see that truth without love tears people down and love without truth keeps them weak, you realize you really can't have truth or love unless what? Unless you have both of them at the same time. That's why Paul insists on putting them together in Ephesians 4.15. He says there that the Christian is always shooting for this third way of speaking that brings together truth and love at the same time. If you back up a few sentences in chapter 4, you'll get the context there. You can read that uh, verses 11 to 16 on your own. But he gives us the context. Here's why we speak truth in love. We do this, verses 11 to 12, because Jesus has given resources to us in the church. And he gives us resources because, verse 13, he has a goal. The goal that we would all grow up into the fullness of Christ. That we would mature in our faith so that, verse 14, we don't stay like children who are unstable in our faith. And the way that we do this, the way that we mature, verse 15, is we speak the truth in love to each other so that we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Paul's saying that if we want to grow and mature as believers and as the church, we have to talk to each other in this truth-love combination. He says that in this context, this kind of conversation is the means to our spiritual growth. Now, a lot of other passages in Scripture 
scripture that tells us how do we grow in our faith. We, well, scripture helps us grow. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit helps us grow. Growing through suffering, through prayer helps us grow. All of those things help us mature. But in this passage, the emphasis is on that common, ordinary, mundane activity of talking to each other. Vital for the church family as a whole that we speak the truth in love to each other, which means it's essential to your family as well. Now, when you realize that the goal is to have both truth and love, that's going to push each one of us probably. Some of us are going to need to work at being a little more truthful when we speak. Others of us are going to need to develop a little more compassion when we speak. So if you find yourself thinking about life, if you find yourself typically using truth that tears down, and if you want to see your kids mature with your conversations, you want to practice truth that builds up. One way of thinking about that is to say you want to develop as a person who encourages others. You want to develop as a person who sees what is true of your child, calls it out in such a way that it helps your child move in a positive direction. On the other hand, if you find yourself more typically holding your words back in a way that keeps people weak, you want to practice love that speaks up. And one way of talking about this is that you want to speak developed as someone who speaks honestly, a little more honestly, with others for their sake. That's the vision. Speaking truth in love so that you give your children a reason to embrace the content that you're saying. That's the big global picture. Easy to say, hard to do. Why is that? One reason is that so few of us have experienced this kind of speech from the people around us. We haven't heard it from others. We don't have a sense of what this combination sounds like. Instead, maybe in our own families growing up or over the years, we've been taught to relate in certain ways when things happen. And so you already have these little voices in the back of your head that say, this is appropriate to say in moments like this. Say something that will threaten. Say something that will whine. Say something that will argue, that will debate, insult, complain, lash out, explain, defend. Yeah, that little voice, and it just feels normal in those moments to say those kinds of things because that's what you've heard over your lifetime. That's why even though you can see sometimes that, that speaking this way, is the, those kinds of ways is guaranteed to drive people away, you still fall into it because that's just what you're used to. The truth here is that you can only give to others what you yourself have received. Does that mean that I'm doomed? Does that mean that you're doomed? if you and I were raised never hearing someone speak truth and love to us? The answer is no. I'm not doomed just because I did not hear this kind of speech in my family. Here's the good news, and here's where a relationship with God becomes incredibly practical. Because God cares what you say to your child. And so the Bible's lots to say about how you talk to them, but before God tells you how to talk to others, he first assumes that you have to have that experience yourself. That you have to have that experience of someone who crafts every single word that he's ever said to you in order to build you up. And so God takes that responsibility on himself. That's why he calls himself our Father in heaven. And it's as you live in a relationship with this gracious parent 
that you start to have a sense, oh, that's what grace sounds like. That gives me an idea of what, what I should be saying to the people around me. Because when God speaks to you in Scripture, he reveals the same three things that you do when you speak. As you read Scripture, you learn what God is like. You learn what he values. You learn that he values redemption, restoration, rescue. You learn what he's like inside. You also learn the place that you have in his world. You learn how he sees you and values you, loves you, wants to restore you. And as you have this regular interaction with him, he's giving you reasons to want more of him. Reasons to accept his invitation. Reasons to say, based on what I just heard from you, what you have brought to the table, I want more of you. I want a lot more of you. This is a good relationship to be in. And when that's been your experience, you long to pass that on to others. That's what happened in my living room on Easter afternoon. It would have been so easy to be harsh with my family or bitterly withdraw from them, and by, it, it is by God's grace. I, I chose a different option. It was a harder option, but one that was better. It was one that required me to step up and plead with my family to recognize that when I talk, I'm not just saying words, but I'm saying them for your benefit. And I need you to get on board with that reality that my words are for your good. Now, why did I choose that option? It's not because I'm a wonderful guy. I have plenty of spectacular failures. My family well knows this. I've exploded angrily in more times than I can count. I've pulled away in self-pity at least as many times. I'm not a wonderful person, but I have a wonderful God. A God who did not reject Adam and Eve when they rejected him. And a God who hasn't rejected me either. And that means something then. That means that afternoon in my living room, I'm not the only one there. I'm not alone. My God is there too. And he doesn't treat me the ways that I'm tempted to treat my family. In that moment, he doesn't abandon me. He doesn't drive me away from him. He's there with me that afternoon, still not treating me badly. And that means that regardless of what I do next, I lose nothing by trying to respond to them with grace. Even if everything goes south at that moment, my God's still going to treat me well. And so I stepped into the path of one of my little people. I held my palm up and I said, no, stop what are you doing? I'm going to brush my hair. And you get the little edge in the voice. I told you earlier that we were leaving soon. Why didn't you get ready then? I was reading a book. So you, you were thinking about what you wanted to do or what I asked you to do. A little softer this time, what I wanted to do. When I said get in the van, I was thinking about what would be good for our whole family, the five of us, and I was thinking about what would be good for our grandparents. I was thinking about seven people. How many people were you thinking about? One. Honey, I said, I love you. And that means you can't live your whole life wrapped up in yourself because that's just way too small. Get in the van. 
What did I do in that moment? I used the voice that God has given me to speak in such a way that I could quietly invite a little person to repent, to realign with Jesus, with his agenda, and then realign with the rest of us. This is one of those success stories. They don't all turn out this way. But what happened next really was amazing. This is not a parenting gimmick so that all of your dreams come true. But that little person piped up in the back of the van and said, hey, can we pray together? And they led all of us in confessing to God how we had been self-absorbed. And that change of heart from that little person then rippled throughout the rest of the van. We spent the rest of the time actually engaged with each other, talking to each other, playing roadside games together. And that outward movement away from themselves and away from ourselves continued then as we spent the afternoon with our grandparents, their grandparents. I need to speak in ways that represent the creator's heart to the people around me. And at the same time, I need to hear his heart from others when they speak into my life. I said it was big picture. This is not just for your children. And so I need my wife, Sally, to step into my world when I'm frazzled by things at home. And I need her to say to me, I think you need to take a walk to get yourself right with the Lord so that you can live a little more patiently with us. I need my daughter when she was at home, when she saw the look of frustration come across my face. I needed her to step into my world and say, easy, Dad. I need my colleague to come and prop herself up on my office door frame and say, you don't really need me to tell you that your lifestyle isn't healthy right now, do you? I need people to speak to me out of the depths of grace that they've experienced from Jesus. He's put those people in my life as his representatives so that I'll draw closer to Christ and then closer to them. That's your calling as parents. The calling to drink deeply of God's grace and kindness to you and then gently, confidently, talk to your family and friends out of that grace. Talk to them so that they long to realign their lives with Christ and then reestablish relationship with you. In other words, what am I pleading with you today? I'm pleading take the long haul view of parenting and go about building that relationship that you need one conversation at a time. Okay, we're going to take a 15-minute break. Um, just a couple questions. Maybe feel free to talk about these. Feel free not to talk about these. Um, maybe just talk if you're here with your spouse. If you're not, talk with somebody else. Which side does your family tend toward? Do you tend toward harsh truth or unhelpful silence? We'll come back in about 15 minutes for section two.